everyone, and welcome to one more episode of the Geopolitical People podcast. Today, we are really happy to have with us His Excellency Hideo Suzuki. He's the ambassador of Japan in the Czech Republic. And today we will be talking with him about security in East Asia and the security threats that Japan is facing right now. So thank you, Mr. Ambassador, for being here with us today. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Thanks again for joining us. So to start off with, I just wanted to talk about very generally, like what are some of the constraints and opportunities that Japan has because of its unique position and how do these govern its external relations and its foreign policy? Well, thank you for the very, very good introductory question. I, I think I'll talk about what are the principles that govern the Japanese foreign policy. Japan has been the country that has most benefited of the free and open democratic system, free and open trade system established after the Second World War, war and, and the Bretton Woods institutions. So our ultimate goal is to keep this rule-based order, international rule-based order predictable and uh, open to every stakeholders so that we can continue this sustainable world trade system and the political institution. So we are very much committed to the multilateral system. We are living in this world of multifaceted layered system. And on the top of that, we have the United Nations, of course. Mm -hmm. and from January this year, we are a non-permanent member of the Security Council of the United Nations. This is very important for us. This is uh, where we can get uh, our foreign policy uh, locked in in the world issues, the most important world issues, uh, where we can uh, reflect the voice of Asia in this world institution. So United Nations is really a, a very important factor in the Japanese foreign policy. That's why we have a huge mission in Europe, mm -hmm. and we have one of the most experienced and talented ambassador, permanent representative in Europe. Second, uh, we especially uphold the, this rule-based order in the Pacific. Our aim is to, as I said, to keep this free trade system, free democratic system. We are a country of islands made of more than 6,000 big and small islands. Whatever we import, we, it's through the sea. What we have, whatever we export is gone over the sea. So we have to secure the freedom of navigation, the freedom of sea lane communication, import of energy, export of industrial products, etc., etc. So this is extremely important. And in the heart of that, of course, we are having trying to have good relations with our immediate neighbors, Russia, China, Korea, but also ASEAN is a key factor in our foreign policy. This year, it's 50 years anniversary of relations between Japan and Asia. 
it started with a kind of agreement of rubber trade with these countries, but now it has developed into a whole scale, full scale set of cooperation uh, from uh, governance from to also to disaster relief or climate change, energy transition, all the things. And it is very important for Japan that the ASEAN countries keep their kind of ownership in what they do. They stand on their, on their own feet and that they safeguard their autonomy and sovereignty. This is quite important. That's on this occasion, uh, the 50th anniversary, we are having in December a special summit between Japan and Asia. And we would like to reboost once again our cooperation and maybe find new areas of But all this, it's not only Japan. It's not only with Japan that, that uh, we are doing that. We are, of course, cooperating with the United States, with Australia, mm -hmm. by the way, um, Australia is becoming really uh, a central partner in all this uh, cooperation with uh, Indo-Pacific or ASEAN. But Europe is also a very reliable partner. Mm -hmm. So we welcome very much the involvement of the uh, European Union and its member countries to be engaged in many ways in the Indo-Pacific, ASEAN, East Asia, whatever, in building uh, this or safeguarding this multilateral system based on rules, based on predictable rules, international recognized rules, and uh, connect also these countries to the world. It's very important. The situation of these countries are very diverse. It's not, nothing that you can see in Europe from a very uh, developed country to a rather landlocked uh, country that have a lot of challenges in integrating themselves to the world. So we call connectivity and we have an agreement with the European Union to develop connectivity in the world. So we have really to make this something more tangible and real to make this multilateral system that we are really appointed together with the Europeans something that will work in the Indo-Pacific. This is our goal. Mm. This is what we call the free and open Indo-Pacific or for it uh, in short. Mm. Mm. Thank you very much because I think it's a really good outlook of like how does Japan see the world and everything. We'd like to go a little bit in the regional part of mm -hmm. uh, Japan's uh, foreign policy and security policy. What are the threats that right now uh, Japan conceives as threats in the in in its surrounding uh, seas and and around the the islands? We know that uh, during President Abe's government, the approach on defense policy was changed. We would like to know a little bit what have been these changes, and also if with uh, current president uh, Kishida, it's going to we're going to continue with this trend in Japan, or if the government is uh, going to take a different approach. Well, 
uh, there is a very good continuity between the government of Prime Minister Abe and the current Prime Minister Shida. Is to take the reality very much seriously into a strategy. Prime Minister Abe has launched this initiative in his first government. Of course, the Japan-U.S. alliance is central, is key, a crucial element of uh, security policy. But uh, Prime Minister Abe has the big vision of partnering with NATO. And he chose Brussels and the NATO headquarters as his first visit as prime minister. Normally a Japanese prime minister visits first Washington DC, but he chose, he chose Brussels. So from that, we have developed a very strong partnership with the NATO countries. Now we are called the AP4, which is Asia-Pacific 4, Partnership Countries. We, we have invited, Prime Minister Kishida has been, been invited to the Madrid summit, and he has shown that uh, there will be also some Japanese presence in the next uh, business uh, summit. So uh, there is this big continuity. Uh, what Prime Minister Abe has done is to set a full set of new legislations, which deepens more collaboration with our main allies, the United States, and especially uh, to introduce an element of collective self-defense, which means that if the United States is attacked under certain conditions. The legislation set up uh, very strict conditions, but if the United States is attacked, the Japanese self defense forces can help, can get into the situation and defend the United States armies or navies or net forces, uh, even if Japan itself, Japanese territory is not directly attacked. So this is like NATO, like Article 5. Article 5. Yeah. Um, this has been a huge uh, political debate, a lot of controversies, uh, but with a strong will, he pushed through and now it's there. Prime Kishida has continued on that. And then now he has adopted last December a new security, national security strategy. And adopting, by adopting that, he also decided that we are going to almost double the defense expenditure in five years. Now we are spending almost 1% of GDP in the defense. In five years, it will be 2%. This is a huge leap forward. Um, I think that this is something that is needed when we see what is happening in the Pacific. And I come back to your question about what, is, what are the threats that Japan is facing. 
when you see this new national security strategy, we see three actors. And first is North Korea. North Korea, with its fantastic development of its missile capabilities and possibly with more nuclear capabilities, is a direct imminent threat to Japan. More and more. This is very clear. They have longer range missiles. They have the variety of type of missiles. I believe they pretend. They have diverse platforms from which to shoot their missile. Moving trucks, uh, shooting from the trains, and uh, still not completed, but some capabilities are launching from uh, submarines. So we have to be ready for that. And for that, we have to, we have the one missile defense system that we developed with the United States. But if taking into account these recent developments, maybe this missile defense is not perfect. If the North Koreans launch missiles, dozens of missiles at the same time, they are capable, then our defense system could be saturated. So in this case, we have to counterattack the, the base for which they shoot the missiles. Uh, this is a capability that we didn't have until now. So we are going to extend the range of our missile that we have to reach these enemy bases. This is a huge program that we need a lot of money, of course. And for the time being, we are planning to purchase 400 US-made Tomahawk cruise missiles, waiting the time that we can produce all missiles. So this is one thing. Um, second, China. We say the national security strategy that China is a very strategic challenge. When we see the formidable buildup of their naval capacity or their air force capacity, we had to really build a strong deterrence together with the United States. We don't want to fight a war, we want to deter. And what is deter what deterrence means that we have to show any aggression will not succeed. That means we have really to defend our territories, its small islands even, and we are strengthening our military presence in the what we call the north southwestern islands, Okinawa, Amami, and all the archipelago small islands uh, very close to Taiwan. Uh, so that, uh, especially the missile defense system or to a uh, reconnaissance system, etc. We have to also to acknowledge that China is challenging daily our sovereignty over the Senkaku Islands. I'm sure you have heard about that. <laughs> every day, almost every, every week, 
there is intrusion of mm. Chinese public ships, governmental ships, in a ter- either in a territory water or in the contiguous zone, just next to territory water. And this is a very dangerous uh, behaviors uh, that could spark any kind of taking. Third, Russia. Russia, this is the, the position of the position of Russia is the biggest change in the national security strategy compared to the former national strategy that in the, the 2013. Russia is the perceived first in the European continent uh, a threat to the Europe and in Asia it's now perceived also an element of grave security concern especially because more and more their activities are linked with Chinese activities. More and more, especially after the war in Ukraine started, we see more and more joint flights between Russia and China or around the Japanese archipelago or joint navigation between Russian Navy and Japanese, uh, Chinese Navy or, or they around the Japanese islands. This is something that we have to take into account. We see also more activities of the Russian armed forces around what the Japanese northern territories that Russia is occupying illegally since the end of the World War II. Not only, a lot of exercises in the Japanese Sea, again together uh, with the Chinese, more and more they are building up their military posture in terms of SSVN, the big submarines that are launching missiles, or the most modern frigates equipped with missiles Kinjang that they use also in Ukraine. So these are the challenges that we're facing, and these are the challenges that, uh, for which we're preparing with this new security strategy and the new defense budget which is going to be doubled in two pay factors. You took away my next question, but uh, just building on that, like these provocative actions by China, by Russia, um, even by North Korea as well, how do you see the best way to respond to these? Is it through the the, ally- the strategic security alliances by building up a policy of deterrence? Or is there a chance to engage in dialogue with the Chinese? I think probably the Russians is more difficult, and North Koreans... Not at all, but I think there's varying levels. So does then Japan try and engage in dialogue with China to prevent, as you say, a miscalculation or an issue like when they're going into Japanese, encroaching on Japanese territorial waters? Yes. It's clearly yes. Having said all what I said, the national security strategies uh, put diplomacy in the first and foremost. Mm. So we are trying to have dialogues at the highest levels with the Chinese. The foreign minister who visited recently China. 
between uh, Prime Minister Kishida and President Xi Jinping. We don't have yet bilateral visits, but they are meeting in many occasions, uh, G20 and other international conferences. So we are keeping these dialogues. We are trying to uh, having a straightforward dialogue with them. Try to find ways of constructive cooperation in areas, some areas. While, of course, uh, we say what we have to say. Incursion into the Senkaku waters or this uh, rather untransparent uh, military buildup by the Chinese uh, People's Liberation Army. Uh, this kind of things. So we do. Um, with, as I said, with Russians, it's becoming a little bit difficult uh, because uh, we have had very regular talks with the Russians. Because part of this Northern Territory issues, we had the peace treaty talks, etc. But after we praying, they shut down these talks unilaterally. So we are a little bit uh, without talking to them for the last one year, let's say. North Korea, it's very hermited country. Mm. Um, I think uh, that, but at the same time, the prime minister, every prime minister, Abe Wakishida, say publicly that they are ready to talk with Kim Jong-un directly without any precondition. Because we have a, a lot of issues with him. Not only these uh, missiles, but also the, the abductees issues, um, many others. So we, we keep this position and to be, to talk with them, but it's in that they are not ready and do that. I would like, uh, we've talked uh, about, um, the challenges and I want to talk about the countries that are rather uh, friendlier with, uh, Japan in the region particularly two, uh, which are, uh, interestingly enough, still Japan has um, grievances or at least clashes between because of the islands. Uh, both of them, uh, well, one is South Korea and the other one is Taiwan. How does, as in with China or with Russia, this claim of sovereignty over certain islands leads to collision? How is it shaping the relationship of Japan with South Korea and Japan with uh, Taiwan? Well, with South Korea, the new president, uh, Yoon Seo-yeol, has clearly put his priority as his priority, having good relations, security relations, security cooperation with Japan. And he says it uh, everywhere. Even during his visit to Washington, D.C., his statement in the Congress, he clearly said that the cooperation, trilateral cooperation between Japan and Japan Korea, United States, and Japan is uh, essential, and he would like to do that. So uh, we are we are very much uh, uh, appreciate this kind of uh, statement, and that uh, the visit to the leaders, the president of Korea to Japan, and prime minister of Japan to Korea is happening. It's been a long time; it didn't happen. So we are very, very, very 
uh, positive and uh, uh, we'd like to continue on this note. President Korea has uh, been very uh, instrumental in solving some of the historic issues. And uh, this is a very good uh, step forward to, to put forward the security cooperation. We know in this Asia, Japan and Korea are the only two advanced democracies. Mm. We have to cooperate to, uh, to cope with the different threats and challenges, especially North Korea. We have to exchange information about their activities, especially how we are going to share information about their missile launches, how to predict these activities. It's uh, really a common uh, issue, a uh, common security issue that we have to tackle. Since uh, President Hyun is in power, the trilateral military exercises between Japan, US, and Korea has resumed. We had recently a naval exercise between the three. So things are going step by step in the right way. So we really want to keep in this way. Taiwan, of course, we don't have a formal diplomatic relations. But we have a strong presence in terms of economy, in terms of business. We have a representation. It's not an embassy. We have a representation. And uh, Taiwan is really uh, a very close partner every year. We think that Taiwan has also its role in international Arena, COVID and public health care is one good example of that. They managed very well the pandemic in the country during all these years. I think these experiences could benefit all of us. I have one more question just about uh, security partnerships. So obviously we're talking about now South Korea, U.S., as a trilateral partnership, we also have Quad, which I think has seen increased importance in terms of security. I mean, it's very important for Australia's foreign policy now and our new defense outlook um, with Japan as a major partner. And then with the Philippines recently signing an agreement with the US on um, multilateral defense. Obviously, these are all in response to um, China's rising naval capacity and posture. Do you think that they'll be effective over the long run in preventing the rise of China and actually maybe at one day being able to bring China to the table for a negotiation and sort of a integration into the into the system? Well, I would, first of all, I very much we very much value the the, the Quad uh, partnership between Australia, uh, your country, one United States, India, and Japan. It's a very, very valuable framework, uh, not only from the defense uh, perspective, but also from the various uh, economic issues, social issues. Uh, we have tackled the, the, the COVID pandemic together with the Quad. We have uh, invested a lot in 
supporting the vaccine industry in India uh, so that they can produce uh, more vaccines that could be exported to, uh, to the Asian countries and other Asian countries. So this is developing as a real uh, kind of uh, uh, one element, one big element of the structural governance in the Indo-Pacific. So we very much uh, value the participation of Australia, uh, a very big partner for us. So, well, I think that you know, the specificity of Indo-Pacific security in the Pacific is that it's not a monolithic structure like you have here in Europe. Here you have the European Union in the NATO that covers a huge, yeah, it's almost, yeah, it's on geographical Europe, yeah. almost. Not yet, but um, Indo-Pacific is completely different. Mm. The only very formal alliance is between Japan and the US, Korea, US, and Kansas. The others are more or less of partnership or variable geometry, some sometimes bilateral, sometimes prelateral. For example, the, the agreement between Philippines and U.S. is very much welcome, uh, but um, you know the the shape of this bilateral structure is very different from one another. Hey. So the, the efforts that we have to do is uh, very complex. As I said in the beginning, we should never forget that we should put ASEAN in the center. So we have these bilateral agreements, but every time we have the feedback this in the ASEAN context, that's the only way. That's the only way to be, to be credible. And, you know, ASEAN is uh, having a role of stitching all this individual agreement into one big concept. So, you know, that's why we consider our cooperation with ASEAN extremely important. ASEAN is not a military structure, but it's a forum where uh, these different layers of defense framework, defense structures are anchored. Mm. So yeah, uh, these kind of efforts is extremely important for us. But involvement of other partners, like Europeans, are also adding a lot of credibility and a lot of legitimacy in our efforts. That's why we welcome uh, the European engagement like the French or Germans, others, to come to the Indo-Pacific, either militarily or in the uh, economic and trade mm. area. We have seen Czech Prime Minister Fiala doing the big travel, Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, 
this is a very good uh, message uh, from coming from the Europe that they are willing to engage in the ASEAN and in the Pacific. So these kind of multilateral efforts is something that we have to promote. We discuss, we'll discuss about that in the G7 in Hiroshima, which is starting now, um, to, the, to which European Union is an integral part of it. Mm. From the Alliance, and Michel uh, will be there. So uh, G7 is playing a very big role in stitching Europe, United States, and in the Pacific, represented by Japan, in giving a push to the uh, to world position on Russia. I think the G7 is uh, the, the best coordination arena to, to have a unified approach to uh, the war in Ukraine, but also not only in different challenges in the world. So we are very proud of being the chair of the presidency this year, and uh, I am sure that we come up with good solutions. That is good. I, will, I have one question that arose from what you were mentioning uh, at the importance of ASEAN and the importance that Japan gives to ASEAN, but at the same time to other partners like the EU and the United States. Um, we saw in in recent months, a uh, couple of years, well, recent months, that the Belt and Road Initiative pushed by China is not having is not giving the results that uh, that they expected to have, and uh, there's an increased cooperation, trade cooperation between uh, the European Union, for example, and Japan and other Indo-Pacific um, actors. Uh, do you think it would be possible, or would Japan be looking forward to have some sort of uh, easier trade agreements with the European Union, for example, through ASEAN, so that it would uh, engage with the entire community? Or do you think it is something that will develop more, as we were mentioning, in bilateral agreements with, uh, with the Indo-Pacific countries? Well, as I said, uh, Indo-Pacific is a kind of structure that's very multi-layered. So bilaterals, pre-laterals, uh, partnership, coalition, everything is welcome. Uh, it adds to the to to that one layer to to what is existing and and the symbiosis or synergies of these different layers is uh, extremely uh, beneficial and uh, uh, we should uh, we should add to that. So we can have bilateral cooperation at all. We can have also uh, more European Union approach. Uh, we have already uh, an EPA, Japan-European uh, kind of free trade agreement, mm -hmm. which is uh, having a very, very good result since it has been signed in 2018. Um, in Asia, we have, diff again, different type of, uh, uh, of uh, trade agreement uh, that works in synergy with the Japan-European Union uh, free trade agreement. This is one thing. Another thing is uh, the connectivity partnership that uh, Paris have assigned with the European Union. 
which opens the way uh, to the collaboration between Japan and the European Union and European member states to, to connect, as I said earlier, connect these people, uh, these countries in the Pacific uh, to the world. How to, uh, to help them in, in their access to the world market by leveling up raising their standard uh, or giving them access to the seaports, upgrading the seaports so that they can have more room for these countries, these kind of things. Another thing is uh, the Green Alliance that we have signed, I think, two years ago. Uh, yeah, in the Pacific is a huge market for energy. It's the growth center of the world. It means that there is a in huge necessity of energy. As of course, we want this energy to be clean so that uh, they can produce something that is sustainable and that's good for, good for us, good for them. So how we are going to uh, make cleaner the existing energy, how we're going to provide additional energy in the cleanest way as possible. This is where Japanese technology, European technologies, US technologies could cooperate together to have the right answer. And I think it's, again, it's not a single answer or one size fits all. It must be, you know, the situation of in the Pacific countries is quite different from one to another. Then no countries, uh, ocean countries, um, very dry countries, wet countries. So they have different weather conditions. They have different land situations. So we have to adapt our solutions to their situation. And we have to come up with a variety of solutions so that they can pick what they, what they want for that. Uh, we have to have uh, a very big coalition of technologies. That's uh, another way uh, for the Europeans to come into interpersonship. Cool. Thank you very much for your time. We've got one more question which we like to ask people, which is always, so now you're ambassador of Japan to Czech Republic. What was your kind of career path uh, to get you to this position and what inspired you to, to pursue this career in the first place? Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to say that uh, I'm very honored to serve in the Czech Republic. It's a very uh, beautiful country, but also a dynamic country uh, with core features uh, with Japan as a very traditional industrial manufacturing country. So we, we, we have a lot of things in common, a big interest to Japan and uh, so, so I, I'm very, very, very honored and uh, and very excited to be to be here. So uh, before that, um, I have been posted uh, in France, where I started my career. Uh, I have been to the United States, United States, Washington D.C. Uh, just at the moment where the first uh, Obama administration started up, then Vietnam and Korea. So, um, very much involved in Indo-Pacific uh, issues, 
um, either development assistance or security, maritime security, you know, that Vietnam is facing a huge challenge on South China Sea vis-a-vis China. So uh, all this, um, I, I think I'm very happy to coming back to Europe with all these uh, experiences. Uh, I think I can serve as uh, a gateway, kind of, uh, for uh, the Czech people uh, to the Indo-Pacific, whatever area they're engaged, government or culture or business. So that's uh, that's how I see myself. Fantastic. That's really nice. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Suzuki, for giving us this interview. And uh, for you guys, uh, we will see you again in the next episode of The Geopolitical People. That's up. The Geopolitical Pickle is created by Ronan Wordsworth and Juan Francisco Muñoz, two Geopolitical Studies postgrads from Charles University in Prague, Czech Republic. Follow us on Instagram at The Geopolitical Pickle or Twitter at The Geopico for more content and follow us on every podcast platform.